Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. All right, everyone. Good day, good evening, everyone. Today is the 1st of September 2021. And today I'm very pleased to have a very interesting guest, Bryce Whitwim, uh, join us, who is an expert in marketing and advertising in China. Bryce, welcome to the Reorient Podcast. Thanks, Jesse. I'm really happy to be here. Great. Well, um, so Bryce, I think people can tell from your name <laughs> and your accent that you're not originally Chinese, but you're, uh, you spent a, a couple of decades, uh, even more in, in China and the greater China region. But you're originally from, I believe, South Dakota. So maybe share with us uh, sort of briefly how a, a young man from South Dakota sort of unlikely journey to become a um, advertising and marketing guru in China. Okay, so thanks, Jesse. I appreciate it. And I will try to answer your question in the briefest, most interesting way possible, because any anytime you tell your life story, you always uh, <laughs> always this tendency to go on and on and on. And normally my wife is next to me and she'll kick me under the table <laughs> so, and yeah. send me like, all yes. right, that's enough. Um, so, yeah, so I, I literally uh, I was I graduated from the University of Minnesota with a Russian area studies degree. I was a Russian guy. Uh, I was unable to find any opportunities uh, to go to then the Soviet Union. So a professor recommended that I go to China instead. And it turned out I found a teaching job in Beijing. And that was a really enlightening experience. Uh, it wasn't a, let's say a financially viable one, but it really essentially changed my life. And after that, I, moved uh, to Taiwan uh, for about three years where I studied Chinese. And later after that, I went back to the U.S. and got my master's degree. And that kind of started out my whole career plans. It was in my master's degree program that I found a love for marketing. Or you could say I found that I wasn't very good at finance. So usually <laughs> at that time, you usually have this, you should do marketing or you do finance. And surprisingly, I was really good at marketing. So I immediately thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. So I went back to Taiwan after graduating, and I got a job at Nielsen, the marketing research company. I was pretty much in retail software. Uh, I thought it was a very interesting chance to, to really get into uh, marketing and, and advertising. And I was there for about three years before I joined a company in Hong Kong that was primarily did uh, retail displays and merchandising for, for big brands like Coca-Cola and Procter and & Gamble. And then later I was in Thailand and that was my real first advertising, advertising job. I was at Lowe in Bangkok for five years. After that, uh, I was recruited to, to China. For Obviously at that time, my, my, my Chinese was easily better than my Thai. And I took a job uh, with Ogilvy in, in, in Shanghai about 2005. And I've been in Shanghai now for almost 16 years doing various jobs in advertising and, and marketing. I've always stayed on the non-traditional advertising side because like in 2005, it was very niche. Most people in advertising business were doing television and print ads and doing the more 
you know, Mad Men, Don Draper stuff. I was much more into digital and retail. I saw that as the kind of the future. And about 2010, 2012, the market flipped. And suddenly the guys that were doing the digital and retail parts of the presentations to the clients, they got bumped up to the front seat and the other guys got kind of pushed back. And in a sense, it hasn't changed since then. It's still very much a part of the China market now, which is very much digital, e-commerce, social media, retail. So in a nutshell, that's my life story. That, that's a perfect uh, summary, Bryce. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you is because you have a really great historical perspective on uh, advertising and marketing in China, which is you know the biggest fastest uh, consumer market in the world uh, for the last um, you know, probably three decades. So um, when you you know arrived in Asia, obviously the U.S. Uh, has been the leader or had been the leader, I should say, in you know mass marketing, right? Because the U.S. in a sense developed the idea of a mass consumer who you targeted to, you know, in, on a very uh, broad geographic basis. So the U.S. was very innovative and very uh, had a lot of leadership in leveraging you know mass communications and conducting mass marketing strategies. So could you share with us a little bit about when you first arrived in China, uh, to what extent were you deploying um, proven marketing, advertising models, frameworks, templates from the U.S. into China? And to what extent, even in the early days, that wasn't the case? And then I'm sure it's, as you just mentioned now, and we'll get into sort of the digital transformation uh, and, and and, and the more sophistication of the China market. But bring us back to the early days of, of marketing advertising in China. Sure. So upon arrival, uh, I worked uh, in the department uh, with Ogilvy Action. At that time- Just give us uh, an idea now, of the uh, t- arrival, like the timing, the year. Oh, sorry, it's 2005, end of 2005. And uh, at that time, our agency was specialized in retail, activation, uh, which was more about non-advertising type of activation, either retail and some digital experiences. That's where our core focus was. So at that time though, uh, advertising in China followed pretty much the same global model where you initiated a big idea through a campaign based upon an insight of a consumer. And then from there, you created an advertising campaign 75% of it was on television. The other 25% was on non-traditional media. And then uh, magic happened. Consumers saw the ads and they went to the stores and bought the products. At that time, it was clear that no matter what you did in China, you would achieve success. In other words, any good or bad ad would largely be successful because at that time, not only was the market opening up, but the market was expanding. So in tier one and the large cities were initially always the core focus in the beginning for most foreign consumer brands. But it became obvious that as the market, as the market developed, that they needed to move beyond tier one to tier two and tier down to tier seven. So as a result of a distribution increase, brands saw increase in sales. So in other words, Parallel to the marketing efforts we were doing, the brands were increasing their sales. 
through distribution channels. So it always looked like the advertising was doing fantastic because the sale, the marketing people would come back from the clients to say, oh my God, that ad achieved 30% increase in sales. Well, the reality is that the ad wasn't probably the result of those success. It was the distribution. Nevertheless, brand started to grow. Yeah. Right. In other words, they were attributing the entire uh, amount of sales growth to a particular ad while ignoring all of the physical infrastructure and distribution logistics, which would make products available to more consumers to buy, thereby increasing their sales. Yeah, exactly. So um, I obviously, I can't discount to say that the ads were useless and had no, no purpose. No, that's not true. Definitely at that time, brands were starting to, to foreign brands definitely had a huge impact. And at that impact, started to, at that point in time, started to become evident that retail uh, and digital started to have much more of an important part in the consumer buying process. It wasn't just the TV and print ads, but it was also the other things as well. And in that context, China followed very much the, the global model, is that you needed to have an integrated marketing solution if you wanted to be successful in China. So that at changed, what point though. did yeah. you see... Uh, sorry, did, am I interrupting you? No, no, go ahead. Okay. So uh, at what point did you see sort of China having its own unique approach to marketing and advertising where a um, sort of the Western American uh, template or framework was no longer effective in China? I think it was really when I would estimate around 2015 was when you started to see the transformation. That was really at the growth and development of Weibo, WeChat, and, and obviously Taobao. Uh, those social media on one side and e-commerce on the other, and when you saw them completely take off. And at that point in time, you saw the power of media being consolidated into the two players, Tencent and, and Alibaba, and to a certain extent, Baidu as well, which, is known as the BAT. And they started to really gain power around that time. And it's that time you started to see a flux, fluctuation in media spend, moving from traditional television, print, radio, uh, all those things started to quickly evolve into the non-traditional spaces, the e-commerce, the social, the digital. And those things really started to flourish around 2015. So um, I think most of our listeners are, will be familiar with, um, you know, Tencent and with Alibaba and WeChat and Alipay and, these, and this concept of the uh, walled garden where you have a closed ecosystem that combines social media and payments and, and a lot of other things, which is very powerful. And in effect, China was the leader uh, in developing this. But when we're looking specifically at the concept of marketing and advertising, walk us through some of the, the, the key points of differentiation uh, from a, let's say, an advertising agency campaign when you're developing uh, something for traditional media, you know, television or print, what you used to normally do, to, and then moving into to the digital online world. 
think the biggest difference normally is if to start off with is if you look at a market like the United States, just as an example, uh, it's still still media spends about 75 to 85% traditional television media. So in that sense, that China is about 30, 35%, uh, 25% traditional media. And uh, as of like 2021. So in order to plan for a particular campaign, you have to be less reliant on, on a visual video advertisement than you used to be before. And in addition to that, that social media and, com and within not only in e-commerce spaces, but within the social media platforms themselves have been places where consumers become aware of products, they consider them, they find out information about them, and the key difference here is that they immediately can purchase them. So therefore, the role of marketing and advertising has become one that affects that type of particular process. And in order to do that, companies use a variety of different mediums and channels to be able to actually affect the target audience. If you sit through a global presentation, a global media presentation that features an American market and a China market, the China market one will be 50 pages long, whereas the Western one will be 10 or 15 pages. Why? Because there are so many different points of contact that you have to connect in order to be successful. I did a research project recently for a major uh, computer company that makes uh, home printers. It turned out that the average Shanghai consumer will engage with 14 different channels, 14, in order to make that decision to buy that printer. That's completely insane. So from a planning perspective, you need to, I don't know, to be in 14, that's a bit of a stretch, but you need to be at least in most of them in order to affect that consumer buying mindset. And just to nowadays, maybe yeah. make the point, uh, sorry to interrupt, but to make the point clear, perhaps our listeners. So um, this contrasts maybe with the idea of doing one big uh, television ad and then being present, say, in a big box retailer like, uh, you know, a Circuit City or Best Buy, where they can find your product. In China, the consumer is going to be looking, at least in Shanghai, according to the survey, the Shanghainese consumer, just to buy a home printer, which is you know not a huge purchase, is going to be referencing 14 different online channels. Is that what we're talking about? Online and offline online and offline channels and they will you you're at in order to increase your chances of making them leading to a successful sale to that consumer you need to be present in many if most or if not all of those 14 channels that's right the second second factor is that that 75 percent of chinese consumers don't trust social media ads and that what I mean is an ad, a traditional advertisement. And as a result, uh, brands now are relying more on influencers, either, either on, on celebrity influencers, the ones you read about, or uh, now what's as popular is key consumer influencers. I think it's KOC. called a key opinion consumer, KOC, key yeah, opinion that's right. consumers. Mm -hmm. 
KOCs now are being employed. Yeah. Right. So uh, uh, if I'm correct, an influencer would be like a celebrity who might you know, be in the arts and entertainment, whereas a key opinion consumer is is perhaps more of a normal person who uh, could like is really familiar with a particular kind of product that they consume. Most uh, brands, including the printer example that I just brought up, they will use about five or six levels of influencers. So the ones that you described are the very, very top. You probably use them on a shopping festival like Double Eleven, uh, the Singles Day Festival, or uh, a particular push to be able to create awareness. In the middle of that, there's a lot of other influencers, possibly people, uh, for example, people that are, are, are tech influencers. Chinese consumers buy printers because they want to print their children's homework directly from their WeChat on their phone to their printer. So obviously there could be educator influencers as well to say that this is the best printer to print Little Weiwei's homework. And then underneath it, you have these validated key opinion consumers who are the ones that say, oh my God, this is the best printer in the whole world. I love it. Just for more social validation. So it's a very complicated ecosystem, as you're highlighting, uh, in this new um, sort of social media digital economy in China. Just to maybe take one step back of thinking about um, sort of the theory of advertising or the utility of advertising, it could serve multiple purposes. Um, and you've alluded to this because on the one hand, we want to generate sales, which could be measured you know, on a daily basis um, and perhaps linked to a campaign. But on the other hand, um, if you have a brand, you want to build um, a brand equity, long-term awareness and a positive impression in the minds of all stakeholders, right? That could be not just consumers, but maybe, you know, government officials, um, the employees themselves, you know, potential um, recruits, you know, everyone to say this is a, a great company, a great brand. When you look at the dual roles of, of advertising marketing, how do um, executives weigh those two and balance those two? Because clearly, Brand equity is a long-term proposition, and many people may not be around to enjoy the benefits of the brand equity. And it's it's sort of intangible in a way, so it's difficult to measure. So how how do people approach that? That's a great question, Jesse. I think that people approach it in the context that building brand equity is looking at the entire customer experience and how your consumer connects with your brand. And people always in China, uh, uh, my students, I, I'm teaching currently at NYU, my students, when I always ask them the question, what's your favorite brand? And nine times out of 10, Apple always comes up. And I think what Apple does very well is in that context of brand building. They don't really run lots of television ads. Yes, they have a, a Chinese New Year uh, film that they, they're famous for, but they're brand equity is built upon customer experience. And that comes into different places within the customer journey. When you, for example, when you get, you have an old phone, you get a new phone, the transfer of your data from your old phone to the new phone is a pain point that most consumers would have in the past. In the past, 
I don't know if you're old enough, but literally transferring your phone book into your new phone was literally a nightmare. And oftentimes you had to retype in all your, your old data. That point, pain point has been fundamentally eliminated by Apple because of the iCloud and the ability to transfer all your data to your new phone. That is a customer, that builds brand equity. How you walk into the, the Apple store and how you interact with the Apple store. And the simple fact that even in China, when you walk in, I've seen people walk into the Apple store with problems with their Huawei phones and people in the store will help them. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.